Hi, my beautiful people. I just wanted to let you know about a book that's helped me save a lot of money. The book is called How to Buy in Today's Digital World, Tips for Those Who Want to Save a Buck. This book provides step-by-step -step tips on how to save money on your online purchases. It also instructs you on making smart financial decisions when buying groceries, booking flights and hotels, plus lots more. I hope you get a chance to get your copy. I think you'll love it, and I know you'll save some money. Available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. You're listening to Augustus Cho's Fry It Up podcast on the Nana Music Network. All right, on today's Fry It Up with Augustus Cho, my guest is a comedian, a former personality on the Howard Stern Show and a newly transplanted Alabamian. We will unpack that and more. Now we welcome to the mic, Shuli. Shalom, Shuli. Shalom, my brother, Augustus. How <laughs> are you? Uh, this is long overdue. Yes, I'm glad we made it. We finally got together. Thank um, you. Now, you know the word shalom? Yes. A lot of non-Jewish people may think that it simply means hello. But my understanding is is actually packed with uh, other meanings, such as uh, blessings, you know, and also good health and many children and, e and economic wealth, all those things from the Old Testament theology. Is that about right? Yeah, I mean, hello, goodbye, uh, peace, uh, good, good fortune, all that stuff. Yeah, it's all mixed into one word. You know, we, us Jews, we like to... Uh, Combine and make a good deal at the end of the day for everybody. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Um, let me try my Hebrew on you. It's been Go a ahead. while. Berashit bara Elohim. Let's see. Berashit bara et ha shamaim veha chretz. What do you think? I think if we were in the same room, I'd kick your ass talking to me like that. <laughs> I don't know who the hell you think you are, Augustus, but you say that in Israel, they'll cut you. Well, do you know what you know what that means, though, right? Yeah, it's a prayer, right? Yeah, it says in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and uh, I had to study Hebrew, so you know I managed to throw it out there one of these days beyond the uh, finals of the academics. I love it, man. What did you have to study Hebrew for? Did you lose a bet? What happened? <laughs> Actually, no, no. Hebrew was one of the two, and the other one was uh, biblical Greek. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, I actually have a, a master's degree in a divinity. And the uh, school that I went to required the learning and the mastering of the original languages, which was Greek and Hebrew. So uh, we had to learn both of them. And the thing is, you had to learn both of them simultaneously. Yeah, it's and insane. I, I can't even think of, of teaching someone Hebrew on its own. It's such a difficult language to learn. Uh, and then on top of that, another another language simultaneously. You're you're way too smart of a guy to have booked me on your show. I wish that was the case, but <laughs> we had to actually uh, learn simultaneously because the program was four years, and we had to do so much trans original language translation, you know? So yeah. we started out with uh, one semester of Greek, and then when school started, because we had to do one month of Greek in August, and then in September when the school started officially, we studied with... Uh, Greek 2 and Hebrew 1. So we had one month to get that Greek under our belt. 
and start Hebrew, Aleph, Bey, Gimel, Dalet, Bey, all those things. The amazing thing was, I didn't think it was possible like you were thinking. But once you got into it, it was actually manageable. Sure, sure. I mean, you, you got to have the brain power to do that. So that's... Uh, <laughs> I don't know about brain power, but when the... Uh, I think anybody can do it in retrospect. But at the time, it was like, are you serious? I'm going to learn Greek and Hebrew at the same time? But... I mean, worked. it's possible. I, you know, I've, I've learned Spanish, but not fully fluent i just know how to curse people out and order food so i mean i guess all you need is the essentials is what i'm saying yeah yeah now my last final in the fourth year was called one of the classes was called old testament history and theology and a lot of hot chicks signed up for that oh yeah absolutely it was just Uh, a girl so my the final broke down was that 20 percent of my final was actually translating passage of ezekiel from hebrew into english translation now you know ezekiel is difficult to understand even in english because of all the symbolisms you know well you don't have to tell me and then when you try to translate that and then you have to parse all the verbs and explain the syntax of those passage you talk about sweating let me ask you a question because did you pay for this or did they pay you to go through this (laughs) No, it was a, it's part of the requirement for the uh, you know to get ordained as a minister, wow. and it was a very orthodox uh, in the denomination. So you really had to translate both Hebrew and Greek. But the amazing thing is that I actually enjoyed Hebrew yeah. more than Greek. Yeah, but a lot of uh, seminarians feel like they they're better off in Greek than Hebrew. But that's only because at least uh, Greek was in alphabetic in alpha, beta, gamma. It's in alphabet. But Hebrew seemed very, you know, very different. But once you get into it, syntax-wise, grammar, structure-wise, it was simpler than Greek. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's it's once you get into it, it's not as difficult as it looks and sounds. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's just yeah. different, you know. And you know, well, I mean, congrats to you for going through. I'm sorry that all you got was that telescope when you graduated, <laughs> but I mean, good for you. Uh, um, you know what they call the Koreans, man? What? Jews of Asia. Jews of Asia. You've heard yeah. of that, right? I have. Yeah. I have. Well, you guys are hated on because you're very successful. Well, economically, you know, we're uh, we work hard, we're tight, and all those things. But you know what? Uh, we're- family, big on family. Yes. Yeah. Yes. No, that's I know, I know. I lived in uh, in Flushing, out in uh, Queens, for quite some time in a Korean neighborhood, and uh, they, the families were always out there with the kids. Very nice families. Very nice kids. Beautiful, nice cars, homes. They they were doing well in life, and uh, yeah. it's good. It's good. Good for you guys. They work about uh, fourteen, sixteen hours a day. Yeah, yeah. They were never home, and their marriages were falling apart. But they had nice cars. Very true. Very true. And yes. then when they have the with that nice car, they go to New Jersey. That's right. And they get a girlfriend, and end up paying uh, child support for the rest. That's of That's right. And Koreans also know how to do drinks, so they call us the Irishmen of Irishmen of Asia because we love to drink. I love it. I love it. You guys got all the best qualities of every little uh, perk, you know. Ah, uh, that's funny, man. Hey, so how you like Alabama? I love it, man. I, you know, I was living and working in New York for the for the past fifteen years, and we uh, essentially pulled the uh, handbrake on life and came out to the South. We, I didn't know anything about. Huntsville or Alabama, 
I had some friends out here. They had been talking to me about the real estate game out here and how property is, you know, the values going up and up. And Huntsville in particular is this area that's looking to be like another Austin, another Nashville. Um, and so here we are trapped at home in our apartment in New York during the, the pandemic. And I decided my wife and my two kids, we, we all agreed we were going to hop in the car and take a 14-hour quick drive to Huntsville. And we went to, you know, we'd seen what the houses were going for. And we're like, all right, now we just got to check out the area and see what the South is like. Because all you know is the preconceived notions in your mind of the South. (laughs) Such, Such as? Yeah, like the, you know, the very rural redneck, you know, they don't like outsiders, nobody's welcome, everybody's toothless, everybody's, you know, shooting guns. And uh, we came out here. And the one thing I noticed right away is that everybody was, nobody was doing any of these things because they were too busy living life. They were too busy out there interacting, everything was masks, you know, everybody had to wear masks to go into establishments, but stuff was open. Nobody was talking politics. Nobody was protesting out in the streets. Kids, kids were going to, uh, the school hadn't opened yet when we first moved out here, but I mean, there were, there were on the, in the neighborhoods, there were these learning co-ops that were going on. And, and so there was all this positivity and it was at a much slower pace than the than the pace of New York, and you know, uh, for me, my job was a very high profile job, and and those jobs require you to put it number one on your list, and it had been for fifteen years. Plus, I do stand up as well, so the road was on my list, and then below both of those things was my family, and what the pandemic taught me was that my list was ass backwards. And that I needed to put my family on top, and that's where they need to stay. So this move was about, you know, obviously something better for me and my wife, but really for my kids, for them to live in a home, for them to have a yard, for them to have friends, be able to ride a bike, uh, you know, all the stuff that they, you know, were not be were not uh, accustomed to in the city. And for me, being in New York for 15 years, I loved it out there. I have a lot of friends out there, a lot of great memories, uh, but it changed very rapidly, and I didn't see it changing back for quite some time. And, you know, we're all getting older, and I wanted, I wanted my wife to have a home. I, I was tired of uh, living in a two-bedroom apartment, and, um, and so now here we are. We've been here seven months. Uh, a few months after I got here, I, I left – well, not a few months, but about – Three months ago, I, I resigned from my job at the Howard Stern Show, and you know it was more for the career change, the jump. I, I wanted I wanted to take a leap. I bet on myself. Uh, in this day and age, you leave a radio gig of fifteen years. You know, ten years ago, I would have had to get a job in another radio station. Now you have the ability to broadcast out of your home and make a living. Uh, my cost of living is cut in half from where it was, so. I don't need to be in the top 10 of podcasts. I just need to make a living and be able to spend time with, you know, my number ones on the list, which is my family. And so far that's been happening. I'm at peace. I'm happier than I've been in a long, long time. I'm grateful for the opportunities and everything I learned in New York, but I'm ready for the next chapter. 
There you go. You know, you talk about uh, the real estate being cut in half, but you you didn't mention that your stress was probably cut about 80 percent, right? Well, it's so funny, you know, maybe a few days after I resigned, uh, somebody here in town that I see from time to time, we ran into each other and uh, they said, uh, well, you look about 10 years younger. They go, I don't know. Are you doing something? You're working out? (laughs) I said, well, I quit my job. They go, that's it. Keep doing it. So, yeah, the stress, absolutely. I, I wasn't. Look, I love the opportunity I got there and, and the confidence and the skill that I've learned uh, in the 15 years. But, you know, I'd be lying if I said I was still enjoying myself in my job. I wasn't. It started to feel like a job for the first time in 15 years. And I said to myself as a fan of that product who was now working there on day one, I said, when this feels like a job, I'm out. And so that's what it felt like, and that's what I did. Right, right. We're going to cover talk. We're going to talk about that on Howard Stern show later. But you know, the concrete jungle of New York City has its pluses, and it's okay when you're single or maybe newly married. But it's it's difficult to conceive of raising children there without grass, you know. And yeah. I get that. Yeah, it's 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 tough. Like you, I think it just makes your kids grow up faster, like a city kid is much more aware and street smart than a kid from the suburbs. And, you know, I guess that's a good thing, but, you know, I got two little girls and I want them to be little girls and I want them to enjoy life and I want them to interact with other kids. And, you know, man, when I was a kid, you know, you walked out of your house, you got on your bike and you came back when it was dinner time. And and I get it. The times have changed. I'm not looking for them to ride off for hours on end, but, I definitely want them to feel like kids. I want them to uh, have fun and do, you know, we went on a hike a couple weeks back, the whole family, the dog. And it was first time in our existence as a family that we did that, that we hiked on a trail somewhere with the dog and all of us walking together and checking out a Creek. And like, it's, it's stuff you don't really think about until you're doing it and you're going, well, then this is what it's all about. Right. That's right. That's right. I would say welcome to the South, but I think it's more accurate to say welcome to the New South. Yeah. Yeah. Where are you located? I'm in North Carolina, man. Central part of North Carolina. Yeah. Uh, you ever seen that film, My Cousin Vinny? Sure. <laughs> you ever had that experience down in Alabama? Not, well, you know, uh, not in Alabama yet, uh, but I did have a gig in, um, I took a gig a few months ago in Waynesboro, Mississippi. Oh, yeah. The guy was a big fan, and he owned a place, and he said, I'd love for you to come out, and I agreed, and I drove out. And as soon as I turned and saw where the venue was, I realized I had made a huge mistake. (laughs) But, you know. Were they not ready for a Yankee, or were they not ready for a Jewish Yankee? I don't think either of us were ready for what was about to happen. Them, me. Uh, but as a comic, that story, that material from that gig, plus I feel like it, those gigs make you better as a comic. Well, how about that? Well, I mean, you have to you have to work your way out of that hole, right? Like if I'm opening for somebody or if I'm doing a show on my own where it's a packed theater and people paid a minimum $20, $30 a ticket, there's incentive there to laugh. Right. These people have paid their their 
I'm not saying that's the only reason they're laughing. I'm just saying they're lubed up. They're red. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. The more they drink, the funnier you are, right? Right. And the more you pay, the more eager you are to laugh to get your money's worth out of what you paid. Absolutely. Where, whereas, let's say, a lot of the open mics where comics start are free shows. Uh, a lot of, you know, this show, I think the biggest, uh, the I think it was 10 bucks a ticket. And, uh, you know, so it's a different atmosphere. You have to be ready for it. But you learn more from those shows than you do from the killer shows that are, you know, a thousand, two thousand people in a the theater laughing their ass off. Anybody can have a great set uh, doing a horrible, you know, going up for in a horrible environment for 40 minutes. Not everybody can do that. Uh, but I guarantee you learn more from that than anything else. And so I went, I talked to the owner. He, he was a sweet, sweet guy. Uh, he tried to kind of in a nice way, tell me you don't have to do this if you don't want to. And I'm like, I'm doing it. I'm going up. And I went up and I did 40 minutes and that's pretty good. Yeah. And you know, there were people there that really enjoyed themselves. There were people there that were playing pool. You know, uh, there was a lot going on and I was there. I was asked to do a job. I'm there. I never turned down a stage because where I started, there weren't a lot of stages. So it's in my DNA that if I get offered a performance, odds are I'm going to take it, you know? So, yeah, but, uh, but, you know, that was a weird, weird, like, I, I, I felt like everybody there pulled up on horseback, you know, uh, <laughs> And it, what's weird is the Jew stuff really kind of goes over their head in places like that because they don't really know what a Jew is, right? It's just, I'm just a white person to them. Like they don't know the stereotypes or the, the jokes of about Jews. So it really kind of falls a little flat. And we will be right back after this important message. I see a lot of beautiful couples here tonight. Anybody engaged to be married? No. Wow. Just everybody's here with a prostitute. All right. That's cool. No judgment. I'm glad. Are there lifers here? 25 years married? Over? Yes? I can pick you out by the fucked up shirt you're wearing. Yeah. It's not your husband's fault. They dress us so no one will fuck us ever again after nine years. That's a fact. And we're back. I understand. I understand that because when I went, when I, I went to college in North Carolina, right? Mm-hmm. In Chapel Hill. And my best friend at the time was a, a soccer player for the school named David Blum, B-L-U-M. I never knew that he was Jewish. We were just, you know, we're just friends, drinking, having a party, all those things. And finally, after he graduated, he tells me, yeah, you know, I'm a Jew. What did he do? Did he have a circumcision and have the Stein or the Berg cut off? I have no idea. Then I realized, okay, well, but it made no difference to me, but it wasn't an issue for us. But um, I, I kind of understand even culturally that, even now that there aren't that many Jewish presence in terms of cultural impact down there. And I can imagine. I met a guy, I met a guy at a show once. He's shaking my hand. He says, uh, I've only seen Jews on TV before. You're the first one I've met and you seem pretty cool. There you go. So, so you are a diplomat to the Jewish community, to the, to the rest of the Southerners, because they yeah. form their image of Jewish people based on your behavior. Yeah, yeah. So be ready for the stereotypes to continue to exist uh, because, you know, I'm no superhero Jew. I'm a Jew that uh, 
I'll tell you a story. I move out. You know, I'm surrounded by guys who like are handy. They they fix, they build, they create. They're smart people here. Um, I'm not one of those people. You know, I write dick jokes for a living. I, I say stupid stuff on stage and make people laugh. So our, our first couple of weeks here, there was a rainstorm and one of the shutters on our windows came loose and it was crooked. I get my neighbor coming over, you know, 1130. I was like, hey, uh, I got my ladder and a drill. You want to climb up there and fasten that shutter back up? I said, listen, how about you give me the number of the guy who put it up (laughs) originally and I'll text them because this is why I write jokes so I don't have to climb a ladder on a Saturday at 1130 in the uh, the morning. Uh, But, you know, that that's the type of person I am. I'm not a handy guy. I know my limitations. I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm not good at. So I have no problem throwing money at the situation and getting a real man here to do the job that I can't do. And there's definitely a Southern culture. You figure that one out yet? You figure out what the culture is? Absolutely. Uh, Some stuff I had to figure out the hard way. Like I didn't know uh, in the South, bless your heart means go fuck yourself, essentially. Yes. Yeah. And that's that's a fun little lesson I learned uh, at Walmart. Um, There's uh, I can tell you that everybody is so polite and so nice. And, you know, you break down out here and knock on somebody's door. They will help you. Uh, I can't say the same in New York. (laughs) And um, and the other thing I love is that they still beat their kids out here. And (laughs) God bless them. Because there's some really nice kids out here, and it's probably because they got smacked around a little bit. And, you know, I, I'm not going to hit my kids. I never have. But I like that they know that we live in a playground where, you know, stuff can go down, and they may get their ass kicked. So that's good. Keeps them honest. Oh, yeah. 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 You are now in that pickup country with shotguns. Oh, yeah. And barbecue. Uh, let me tell you something. Uh, not a lot of honking while driving. Uh, out here, not like New York, and that's because the guy who cut you off has got a rifle rack staring back at you, so you're not going to honk at that guy. It's a system that works. I don't care what anybody says. I enjoy driving again. <laughs> <laughs> I, I understand. All right, so in Huntsville, do you, have you found a good bagel in Locks Place yet? No. See, I tell people this all the time. You're going to lose on some things, <laughs> but but here's the deal. You pick up some things, too, right? So, like, it's like Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones, right? The very beginning. He's going to steal that statue. He's coming up to it. It's sitting on that pedestal. What does he do? Does he just take it? No. He replaces it with the bag of sand, right? That's right. And then the whole shit comes down on him. <laughs> That's right. So I'm I'm losing bagels. I'm I'm replacing it with barbecue. Boom. Right there. Best barbecue in the world out here in the South. Love it. Uh, found great Italian food. And that's the other thing. You find these hole-in-the-wall places out here that make the food that you used to get back home, that it's better than it was back home. That's right. That's right. Um, it's just a matter of time before another Jewish person will leave New York from Manhattan, come mm. to Huntsville, and open up a bagel shop that will make that good bagel and locks. Well, I promise the people of Huntsville that I will, uh, I will completely lie when asked how it's going out here when other people from New York ask me. They go, uh, how is it? And I go, it's crazy. Everybody's toothless. They're all having sex with each other. I don't know what's going on. My kids are being beaten every day. Don't come here. 
whatever you do, don't come here. And then I hang up the phone and all of us in Huntsville high five and we go, it's still ours. Nobody knows the secret out here. I love it. I think I'm going to try that because we're, I'm, I'm surrounded by uh, transplanted Yankees all the time and the quality of the Southern life is gone. That's what I'm saying. People, people are impatient now at the stoplight. Like I'm not bringing that to the table. I'm a similar, listen, I was born in Israel, right? My parents, they're from Israel. They met in the Israeli army. We came to the States. Now when we came to the States, my dad didn't sit here and force us to eat kosher, right? He would sit there and he'd grill us a cheeseburger or we'd stop somewhere and get a burger and a shake and he wouldn't give us shit. Now, my dad kept kosher. My mom kept kosher. They never forced it on us because we were here now. Isn't that what immigration is all about? It, uh, assimilation? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. That's why I listen to country music now. I'm here now. I like it. <laughs> I don't I, go that far, man. I got to tell you. Listen, I got us not the pop shit you hear on the radio at the awards. I'm talking a guy, a guitar, and a goddamn story. That's country music. That's a real honky tonk. The outlaw shit. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. But I, but listen, I'm here. I want to give it a chance. I want to give it all a chance because it's not fair to me. It's not fair to them for me not to open uh, my mind to where we're at now. That's what life's all about. When it's all said and done, the toys, the shit you own, it means nothing. What you've learned and the stories you've got, that's that's the winner in life. That's right. That's right. I like that philosophy. It's not the material things. It's the experience of life. Yeah. You ever figure out why uh, you got that NASA down there, NASA Space uh, Flight Center? And it's called Marshall uh, Space Flight Center, named after uh, George Marshall was a chief of staff in the Army. What's he doing with the name, you know, the Marshall Space Center down there? I don't know. There's a lot. Of, there's Listen. There's a lot of stuff going on out here in Huntsville. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, government and military thing. There's this place called the Arsenal. It's a whole, you know, military. And I think it employs both non-military and military. I think it employs about 40,000 people. And, you know, occasionally you'll just hear these little booms going off of like them testing rockets out here or you think nobody knows. And, and when you ask somebody, you know, your neighbor, you say, oh, what do you do for a living? They go, I work at uh, the Arsenal. What do you do? And they go, well, have a good day. <laughs> you don't here. have the need to know. Exactly. There's, there's, and that's the thing with, with Huntsville in particular, per capita in the South, there's a lot of rich people out here because there's a lot of really intelligent people out here as far as uh, technology, software, uh, engineering, uh, scientists, the FBI has a headquarters out here. Google has a, a headquarters out here. I believe Tesla is coming. I think Sony might be coming. I mean, it's it's really, I drive 10 minutes out of my house, and I'm in a metropolitan city, you know? Yeah, so, I mean, you already have Toyota and the Mazda plant down there. Yeah. You must have good sushi, right? Oh, yeah. Sushi's rocking out here, brother. And a place out here, I Heart Korea. Love it. We go there all the time. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Great little place. You're speaking my language now, man. Tell me, brother. How does, like, how does your wife like Alabama so far? I mean, it took some adjusting, you know. She's a Jersey girl. Um, Which East, part? Which part of uh, Jersey? She was uh, born in Patterson. Oh, wow. That's a tough part. Yeah. She doesn't she take no shit. 
That's a uh, rough part. That's why I had to have her permission before we moved out here. Otherwise, she'd beat the crap out of me. But um, she, uh, when we met, she was living in Pennsylvania at the time, and I was in New York, and uh, and we met because of my job, because of being in New York. So it had a lot of sentimental meaning to both of us. You know, this is where our, our life started together. This is where our family started. Is in New York, so it wasn't easy. I mean, she had family and friends there, and I had friends there. My family's on the West Coast. Um, but, you know, like like my parents did for us, they, they, you know, they left Israel for us. They didn't want us going into the military. They, they had a hunch that things wouldn't mellow out anytime soon in the Middle East. So they said, you know what? I'm named after my, my dad's brother, my uncle, who was killed in the Six-Day War. And after he was killed, uh, I was four years old, 1978. They, they grabbed us. They, I think they had twenty or $30,000 to their name, and they came to Los Angeles. And they took a lot of shit from friends and family that were like, who the hell do you think you are? Your sons are too good to go in the military, but mine are. Mine aren't, you know, because in Israel, it's mandatory. You, 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 everybody serves, men, women, everybody. So my mom didn't want that anymore. And, and my dad and her didn't know the language came to the United States and worked their asses off for us, only for us. And so my wife and I, you know, we love my folks. We know their story. It was inspiring. And, and we had much, you know, much more resources to work with than my parents did. So it wasn't as scary, but I think we're both hitting our stride out here. Now we're both really enjoying being out here and the difference. But yeah, there's some days we'll watch something on TV. We'll see our old neighborhood. We're like, ah, yeah. I remember people, you know, my, my last memory is walking out of the apartment in Astoria, Queens. And there was a guy behind my car, uh, taking a shit. And, uh, and he wasn't wearing a mask. <clears throat> that Augustus, what, a, what an animal! I have yeah. a compromised immune system. At least wear a mask when you're crapping behind my car. You know, you got to be at least gentleman about it, right? <laughs> you know, my mother came to America with hundred bucks, landed in uh, Phoenix, yeah. and they ended up in Washington D.C. So, I get the immigration story, and, I, and then I came along, and you know, here we are. I mean, America is still the greatest country in the world, uh, despite and in spite of the political process that they. The politicians try to make it worse, but it really it tells it tells us a lot when, uh, despite that, we we become strong and we survive. You know. Well, you know, one of the reasons why it's the greatest country on earth is because you can say it's not without any repercussions, and there's not too many places like that that you can do that. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's places that uh, you know so, so celebrities. Uh, you know, argue for and fight for human rights, but at the same time, if that celebrity landed in that place, <laughs> they'd they'd string them up and kill them. You right. know, because you're not one of them. And so, it's 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 amazing to me the the power that we have as human beings to look past all this politics shit, stop letting these people divide us. That's all they want to do. That's 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 how they make the most money is uh, unrest and division. Uh, I mean, they work for us. It's not the other way around. And, you know, it's crazy to see the the 
the news, the media, everything is like in cahoots to just drive a giant wedge through all of us. And it's heartbreaking. I, I stopped watching the news uh, months and months ago, months ago. I mean, it, and my life changed because of it. Because, listen, if it's a big enough story, I'll get it right here. I got it. Other than that, all you're doing is just brainwashing me into never, never wanting to leave my house, never trusting anybody that's different from me. You know, I, I lived in New York, which is the most, uh, you know, all-inclusive, secular. We're all one. We all, we all are one. But have a different opinion about the way shit's going on out there or how they handle COVID or a vaccine. Have a different opinion on anything. And there's no discussion. There's no dialogue with that type of person because they immediately – label you, say you're this, that, the other, racist, Nazi, this, that, boom, boom, boom. It's a, we're, we're throwing out shit that we, you wouldn't call your enemy. We're throwing it out so easily these days. So it's, it's just nice to be in a place where politics isn't everybody's talking point. People, people are going to the lake. People are going to, you know, it's like, I feel like we're on another planet. Like COVID didn't hit out here. Like politics didn't hit out here wild yeah i mean I, I personally like the south i used to uh work in the garment district up there in manhattan so i i get what you're saying uh, but i don't want to go up there i don't even want to pay the tolls i mean used to be the first time i ever went up to new york city crossed the bridge was i think 50 cents late oh, eight, late 60s yeah G- it was like 15 G- bucks i think the gw is uh 18 or 20 uh Midtown, I think, is 14 or 6. It's insane. I never lived in a place where I had to pay to go to work. Yes, yes. Pay to park, pay to work. Like, yeah. I just thought, and it's all to better the roads and and and, and uh, mass transit. And all of it ran like shit every day when I was there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, only reason I used to go up there was two, actually the two reasons. One was my favorite pizza place. It was called Famous Rays on 6th and America. Uh, Sixth and 29th Street, but a uh, 49th now or 29th. I, I don't. I think it was. I think it was around uh, Greenwich Village area. But oh, they okay. shut down, and then so that there goes that reason. The other one was this. Uh, there's this place in Chinatown uh, on Elizabeth Street, little hole in the wall. Had the greatest dumpling and all those things, but I'm not going to pay forty bucks to get up to drive up to New York for you know one dish anymore. You know, so I gave it up. Yeah, yeah, and and it's you know. That, like I said, things got so wild and so crazy. And our neighborhood was a cute little neighborhood. It wasn't bad for raising kids out there. Everything was in walking distance. It really, it had the vibe of the city, but you weren't in the city. Uh, but overnight, overnight, it completely changed. Break-ins were happening, uh, cars being stolen. People were throwing, you know, stuff off the balconies into our place and, and, you know, all you hear is uh, everybody's clapping for first responders every night at seven. And I'm like, well, that's a beautiful thing. I love it, but <laughs> there's a lot more going on than just that. And right. I made the choice. My, my kids aren't going to be traumatized. They're not going to have issues. They're not going to get attacked. They're not, we're going to be safe. We're going to go somewhere safe and live our life. I understand. And we will be right back after this important message.
And we're back. Yes. You got a dog yet? Yeah, yeah, I got a, I got a be- came with the gun. It was a package deal. Uh, no, I got a beautiful, uh, German Shepherd, uh, all black German Shepherd female puppy. She's uh, six months and she's, um, over 60 pounds already. She's a beast. She looks like a Game of Thrones wolf. She's like the scariest looking thing, but such a sweetheart of a dog. And how about this? I do this podcast out here out of my house now. And one of the fans of the podcast is a local uh, company out here that does dog training. And, you know, in my episodes, you'll see like, cause I have her crate down here and she stays down here with me and I'll be interviewing people and you'll just see my arm going <laughs> off like it because she's chewing on my arm. She wants to play and I can't play with her and I feel bad, but so he's a big fan. He says, listen, I'm going to help you out with Lila. Let, let me, uh, train her for a month. We'll get her, you know, and so Lila right now is with this uh, company, Alpha Instinct Dog Training. They're amazing. They send you pictures and videos every day. It's like your kid going to, you know, summer camp. And uh, I mean, she's been there less than a week and she's already, you know, she's reading the newspaper. That's how good (laughs) these guys are. So, but yeah, I got this dog. That was my, one of my dreams of coming out here of getting a big home is getting a big dog. I always had big dogs my whole life. And I miss, I love my wife's dog. Don't get me wrong. Rosie's a sweetie. She's a shorty. It's a Shih Tzu Yorkie combo. Uh, sure. I have, I have her in here right now. You can't see her, but, uh, but I wanted a big dog, man. And, and so Lila and every, of course, everybody back in New York, did you rescue? Is it a rescue? Is it a rescue? I'm like, yeah, I rescued her from a guy for 500 bucks. Get out of my life. My kids love her. Everybody's happy. Shut up. Lila. That's good. Yeah. Every, well, Lila is a Hebrew word for night because she's, she's literally when I let her out at night to go to the bathroom, I have to have a flashlight. Otherwise I lose her. She's just pure black. So, uh, she's beautiful. And, and again, another perk, uh, another check in the peace of mind column, you know, it's the American dream, you know, have a nice yard with a dog and quiet life. I haven't picked up a gun yet, but I got my concealed carry uh, permit, which I'm very happy about. And, uh, you know, I never had the urge to own it. My dad owned guns. I've gone shooting with my dad. I'm not anti-gun, but uh, I never had the urge to own it. But the minute you own your own home, I feel like a switch goes off, and I'm like, oh, I get it now. I get it. Yeah. Alabama's going to be proud of you. Yeah, well, plus, you know, I'm on the road still. My wife's home with two kids. You know, I want her to be able to, to you know, to stop some shit from going down if she needs to. And there you go. She, she's a uh, jerky girl. She could do it with her bare hands, but I, I don't want her breaking a nail, you know. Any woman from Patterson has yeah. my respect. Yeah, exactly. Has my respect. Do your children attend the Huntsville City School District? They do. They started going back to school out here, which they're so thrilled about. They're so, and they're like rock stars. They're two kids from New York, (laughs) you know? So like everybody in the school is like, holy crap, you guys are awesome. And my kids are like city kids. So they're, they're very different from these kids. You know, my oldest is 11. My youngest is six. Uh, They're, they're both, you know, I tell you, the best quote, the best compliment I ever got was a a guy sitting in front of a bar uh, in a story. I was walking them back from school and daycare. We were going back home, and this guy is shit-faced drunk, 
on the stoop of this bar and he looks and he goes, Hey, and he points to my 11 year old. He goes, that one's going to be a lawyer or a doctor. And then he points to my six year old and he goes, that one, that one's going to be trouble. <laughs> and he's dead on with those comparisons. Uh, they're both great, but they, they love it. They have friends, you know, out the door. Now they're, play dates every other day. Uh, they, they couldn't be happier. It took them a little bit. My 11 year old took her a little bit to adjust, you know, but once school started she got to go back to school and they got the reaction they got for, for being different, you know, out here, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Plus school really isn't what it used to be when I was going to kid, uh, when I was going as a kid, you know, now you, yeah. you don't get bullied face to face. They do it online or some shit. You know what I mean? But like well, in my day, you know, they'd stuff you in a locker still. They don't do that now. It's frowned upon. But uh, but yeah, they, they're digging it. They're in school. Um, we don't know if they're going to go. They may go back to virtual next semester just because, you know, there's stuff I want to do as a family, be able to go travel around and shit. And uh and so, but you know, that social interaction is important. So we'll see, we'll see what's up. Absolutely. Yeah. How are you going to feel about if, uh, especially you, your, your younger one picks up the Southern draw? I love it, man. I love the accent. I love it. Uh, <laughs> I, I love that they dropped the letter G off of words that had the letter G forever. Like, uh, I'm fixing, I'm fixing to come down there. Right. But you know, are you fixing my truck later? Like, there's no G at the end of it. Dressing? Fixing? <laughs> you know? Oh, that's oh. Have you made that big decision yet, Shuli? And which, yeah, which so is? I, I got a vasectomy about two. All years. right. So which color are you going to be uh, probably by August? Oh. You, you are talking- in a serious football country down there. And one way or another, you're going to either become a Crimson Tide fan or a Auburn Tigers fan, have you decided which hat you're going to wear? This is uh, the burning question out here. Are you roll tide? Are you war eagles? Oh, yeah. The question everybody asks, and I give the same answer every time. The team I am rooting for in Huntsville, Alabama, is the Jews. Not a lot of <laughs> team, not a lot of players on that team. They need all the rooting they can get. Uh, listen, I'll root for whatever team gets me out of the building alive. So, but you know, you gotta love, uh, uh, the Crimson Tide and, and how they represent Alabama pretty much every season. But you also are a big fan of underdogs, man. You want, you want the little guys to get a taste every now and then too. I'm a little, yeah. so you haven't decided yet. I'm, I listen, here's what I know. I love the passion for college football out here. Because I love college football probably more than pros. College athletics in general, basketball, football, it's all – those two are a million times better on the collegiate level, and I'll tell you why. Because those guys are fighting to get to that next level. They are giving their all. They are playing their hardest. You will never see defense played in the NBA like you see in March Madness. You you will never see the, the hits in college football like you see in the pros. Like what are you doing hitting me like that? I got I got a hundred dollar shoe a hundred million dollar shoe contract. Don't hit me like that. Yep. So everything's at stake. These guys are fighting for that spot. So I, I love the passion. I love the respect. I'm a big soccer fan. 
to be perfectly honest. So the tradition, the rooting, the, the, the standing by your team slash school, that's a big thing with soccer. I'm a big Liverpool fan and the Liverpool tradition is, is, you know, so many years old. Uh, and, and it's, uh, I love that. I love the history of that in sports. The Liverpool fans fight. Uh, with each other? Yeah, against the other team. Oh, of course. Oh, yeah, they have hooligans. Sure. Yeah. Every. every listen, you're not. A, you're not an English soccer team if you don't have a, a a little hooligan gang running representing for you. Absolutely. You you probably get invited to a a tailgate pregame party in Alabama while you're down there. Yeah, it's probably the biggest and the best tailgate party. So you'll have to go. I want to go. I want to experience it all. I know they do the black rodeo out here. I want to go to that. Uh, I want to do it all. I want to experience all that the South has to offer because I never have. And I yeah. want to be able to, to have those memories and those stories. I want my kids to experience it. Uh, you know, Talladega is not far from me. Go to a race out there. there you know, there's so much stuff to do. Tennessee, uh, uh, you know, there's, I mean, it's endless, man. Atlanta, we're all, we got everything around us. We're, we're in a great area. You got the golf. We got the Gulf Coast. We haven't even oh. been there yet. I mean, it's great. We, we, we're loving life, man. We're, we're in a really good spot. We're very happy about it. Yeah. You got that mild winter and you know, you, and then you got the extended spring, summer and fall down there. You can't beat that. It's beautiful seeing all the leaves come back on all the trees. Now, now the house, is, you can't even see the houses through the forest. I got two acres of land now, so it's like it's beautiful. beautiful. You want to make a garden up there? Plant some uh, corn oh, and yeah. all those things? Absolutely. I mean, I'm not. I'm going to pay somebody to do it. But, yeah, absolutely. We're going to get a garden out there. That's great, man. How do you like fatherhood overall so far? I love it, man. It's like comedy. You still learn every day, right? You're never, you're never perfect at it. You never, uh, you're never in a position where you can't gain knowledge doing it. And, you know, my, my kids are, uh, amazing thanks to the mom that they have. I mean, like I said, the last 15 years, my priorities were work, work, work. And so I wasn't involved nearly as much as I should have been and could have been. Yeah. Um, and that was a big realization for me as far as making this move and leaving work was, you know, you get the iPhone sends you photo memories, right? Uh, periodically random stuff. It was Halloween this past October and I was still working for the show. We were here and, uh, and I look at the memories and it's a picture of me Halloween 2015 and I'm on the road. And it's pictures of me with fans and other people from the show. And then the last three pictures is my wife taking my girls trick or treat. And I just, uh, that did not sit well with me. Yeah. That's and, beautiful, man. You know, Mick Fleetwood said the same thing because yeah. he had to give up his, uh, fatherhood to yeah. his children to keep that Fleetwood Mac alive. And a lot of artists, a lot of actors and uh, personalities like you, you know, there's a sacrifice there. And, but I feel like you really caught it on early and you were actually trying to mitigate it and turn it around, which I think is wonderful. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I'm in a position now where as far as broadcasting goes, I don't have to run to a radio station and apply. I can, I can make a living doing this on my own. Uh, and the other thing is, look, I'll be honest with you, man. I, I came from nowhere and got an opportunity to work 
on the biggest and greatest radio show of all time, a show that I was a fan of for over a decade before I became an employee. And, and it was all started with a one week audition. And I, I turned one week into 15 years and I, I made my mark on this show. I was a part of its history. And so if you told me, you know, starting tomorrow, I got to go work in a cubicle and sell insurance, whatever. I don't care. I'm cool. I had enough great memories and great uh, uh, life experiences in that 15 years of not only just working for the show, but touring around the world and performing and working with comics that I, I used to watch on TV that I've idolized for years. Um, yeah, I'm cool. I'll, I'll rock with those memories and, and just come home and enjoy the family life. But the beauty is, you know, I still get to do stand up. I still get to do this podcast and, meet people like you. And so that, that I'm good, man, whatever happens, I'm at peace. Finally. There you go. Yeah. It's nice to hear that you're not living in the past because so many people, you know, they live in the past and they want to read, really dig up the past all the time, but you know, Hey, what is the saying that there's a reason why the rear view mirror is small. And then the front windshield is big. You know, you're looking forward, right? <laughs> It's true, man. I, I used to tell my wife this saying, you know, because we used to have people in our lives that always had drama in their lives, right? We all got people, though. And, and I come to realize that, speaking about those people, when you have nothing, meaning nothing going on in your life, there's always something going on in your life. So when, you, when you're not active mentally, physically, when you're not doing something, you tend to sit there and bitch about everything or anything. And, and all you're doing is just wrapping another anchor chain around your neck, around, and you're just stuck, and you're going to stay there forever. You know, for me, uh, as a performer on the radio show, there were years where I didn't perform on the radio show. And the only reason I didn't is because I was sitting there at my desk when the opportunity arose, and I would say, why am I not there? I'd start talking shit. What the, why am I, I could do such a good job. I could do that voice perfectly. Why aren't I in there? Me, that's why I'm not in there. That shitty attitude. And, and that, that is, this universe we're in is a boomerang. So whatever you're throwing out, it's coming back at you. So that negative shit energy, that you're going to be wrapped in that like a blanket, like a baby. And the minute you stop caring, the minute you stop worrying and being angry and bitter that for me that's when it all changed that that's, right. that's when a, a, a week later they they're on the radio going oh did you know Shuli does this impression and now i'm in the studio and now i'm doing that voice that i bitched about not being able to do for years because yeah, i think that's called quantum view of life right right yeah it's, it is i'm a big I'm a big fan of that belief and, and that system because it's made a difference and, and I see it. Yeah, I think uh, it made a difference because it's actually true. It just takes time for people to realize what the truth is. But, you know, when you get there, then you can see it. It's like removing veil from your eyes. Well, it's, it's funny because it's such a – I think so many people can't grasp it because it's so simple. <laughs> Right. Like it's too like they, they don't get it's so easy that it can't be true. But and it's not saying, look, you write something down, you go to bed and it shows up the next morning. It's not a genie. 
you have to adjust your lifestyle. You have to adjust your mental way of thinking. Worrying is our biggest downside. It's our biggest, you know, and, and all you're doing by worrying every day is ensuring that that thing you're worrying about is going to become a reality. I, I tell my, I tell people all the time, when I worried about money, I was always broke. When I worried about being on time, I was always stuck in traffic. Trains were always delayed, always late. It's just a fact. It's just how my life was. When I stopped worrying about money, even though my gigs went down, my in, my price, uh, cost of living went up, mathematically, I sh- we should have been evicted. I should have had to have called every person in my life to borrow money, and I never called one person. The money always showed up. You sound like chapter five of the book, The Secret. Yeah, but it's it's true. When my wife had to teach me that shit because I grew up with Israeli Jewish parents, there isn't a bigger, darker sea of negativity than those two people. I love them, but they can't <laughs> they can't wait to share bad news. They live for it. I don't and, know if, I don't know if Southerners understand it, but I understand what you're saying. Right, and so. When my wife says, all you have to do is think positively and be a good person, I go, get that shit out of here. What are you talking about? But I tried a couple things, and they immediately worked. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, imagine if I really tried this, what could happen? There you go. Right. There you go. You'll always find the pocket space. Just visualize it. That's right. I tell my kids all the time, see it, believe it, achieve it. That's it. There you go. That's it. Hope is for suckers. Don't hope for nothing. Believe it. There you go. And we will be right back after this important message. All I'm saying is this. I quit smoking weed for this family, okay? I sacrificed a lot. Does anybody care about my pain? No. Should I have quit? Probably. I had the munchies real bad one night, and I'm trying to open this box of cherry pie for about six minutes. Turns out, not a box of cherry pie, a box of Reynolds Saran wrap (laughs) with a picture of a slice of a cherry pie on the box. Yeah. Uh, You you gotta be really high to think any part of a pie could fit in a Saran wrap box. And we're back. Speaking of Star, let's uh, circle back to that a little bit and talk about that because a lot of interesting things to uh, cover there. I remember when I was working in the garment district in the early 80s, WNBC from 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock, Howard Stern would be on, and it was just crazy and wild show. Yeah. The characters there and all the funny things. I mean, it was very, you know, sensual, but it was funny. My question I've always wondered when I was listening to this is, uh, and you may be able to answer because you you know Howard, you know the uh, team. Did he kind of evolve into this format by accident or did he have a conscious formula that he was working to come up with that? Well, I think the, the, the history of him on radio, you know, he kind of tried to fit in with the way radio was for a while. And then um, in this movie, Private Parts, he's doing this commercial read on the radio and he basically is lying about going to this store as a kid with his parents and how great the store is. And then at the end of the commercial, he reads, and this is our grand opening of our one location. And it was like, boom, you're busted. And he came clean on the air and he's like, hey, I lied. I thought I could get this off. I'm sorry. I'm an idiot. Here's your song. 
And his wife at the time was like, hey, what you did in that commercial where you're just talking as you, that was really funny. And so he kind of stumbled onto that. And then once he started doing it, he knew right away in his mind, this was groundbreaking. This was going to be new and this was going to catch on. And none of the people in charge felt that way. And it was a constant struggle for him for years uh, as far as letting him do what he saw he could do, uh, letting him live out this vision that he had. And so he finally got that chance and the numbers didn't lie. The, the listeners came by the, by the ton, uh, you know, before there was Joe Rogan, there was Howard Stern. He had every person listening. If he said honk your horn right now and you were driving in New York, you'd hear thousands of cars honking around you. Everybody listened. And at that time, shock sold. You know, it wasn't just in radio. It was on TV. It was in wrestling. I was a big wrestling fan back then. It was all TNA stuff. And, and so, yeah, I think once he realized the, sh- I mean, the shock jock era got you listeners. People who loved you were there. People who hated you were there longer than the people who loved you. So, it worked either way. So I think it was a combination of both stumbling onto it and then realizing they got gold here. Let's go for it. Well, that may have been the case because whatever it was, the bottom line was very, very entertaining. The five o'clock drive home, you know, yeah, probably everybody on the Roosevelt expressway or Hudson, Hudson, whatever, sitting in traffic across the bridge or tunnels, you listen to Howard Stern. Yeah, I, I remember when he came, I was living on the West Coast, I was going to school as a kid, going to school in L.A., and I remember when his show came on in L.A., and I was hooked. I couldn't believe it. It was really the first reality show that I can remember. True. You know, here's this guy yelling at his boss, his coworkers, his wife, like it was real shit, and I was like, wow, this is pretty amazing, and it was very captivating. So tell us how you got on there, because there's a story behind that. Well, I was a caller for, uh, I was a listener for many years, and then they were getting ready to come and do a broadcast out of Las Vegas, and um, I was living in Vegas at the time, and I just started dabbling in stand-up, and I asked if I could make a bet with them at the blackjack table from the Hard Rock Hotel, and they agreed, and I made the bet, and I won the bet with them. And after that, I treated it like a job. I said, I'm going to call in every day. I'm going to have questions, games, whatever I can come up with. I'm going to contribute because in the back of my mind, I thought maybe one day I'll be able to work with these guys or do something with these guys. Again, right? Yeah, exactly. Calling your shot, manifesting. Um, So, yeah, even before I knew about it, I was doing it because I always felt like it would be an opportunity one day and sure enough one day I got a call and I was asked to come out for a one-week audition really to just be a consultant to explain to these people that they hired as a part of this news team the Howard 100 news team what Howard was who Howard was who his staff was who the weirdos from the show was the whole world and I was a super fan so they said we'll fly him out he'll be here for a week he'll explain everything he'll go home (laughs) Well, after day two, I said uh, I snuck a recorder out into Times Square and I went and I asked people, are you excited about Howard coming to Sirius? And whatever their answer was, I would goof on them like I would do on stage as a comic doing crowd work. 
And when I brought it back to the news director, uh, she said, this is fantastic. I want to put it on the air. So that was the crack in the door for me. That's all I needed. I said, okay, now I'm going to learn how to interview. I'm going to learn how to edit audio. I don't want anybody in control of my audio. I want to be in charge of where the funny is. And, and I learned. I learned as much as I could. And one week turned into two, turned into three. They let me go home, get more clothes, turned into a month. I worked a full year without a contract. And then I got signed to Sirius after that year. And this 20-plus person news team was whittled down to about four people. I was one of the uh, three reporters. And then eventually the whole team uh, got disbanded, and I was the only one left and then became a writer and producer on the show. And what did you do when you were off the air in your own time while you were there? Well, I made a promise to my wife that if I wasn't home helping her, that I was making us money. So if I wasn't home, I was doing stand-up somewhere making us money or a personal appearance or voiceover work. Whatever whatever I walked out the door to do, I was coming back with money. That was my promise to her because there is no job harder than not having somebody to tag you out when you're dealing with two kids all day long or all weekend long. So, you know. True. It, it was it was rough for a while. It's not easy. I, I've done it for a few hours, and I hate it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Raising children is very challenging. Yeah. I understand that. You missed the whack pack? Uh, no, because I still talk to them. Uh, okay. How are they doing? Tell us about the whack pack so people that may understand it. The whack pack are a special group of regulars tied in with the Stern show that have uh, special talents and or abilities. Picture like the X-Men. But instead of like superpowers, one guy has a stutter, uh, one guy sweats a lot, one guy is extremely obese. Actually, I just named one guy, all three of those things. <laughs> but, uh, but no, they're all very, uh, special, talented people that, you know, I think without the show, their lives would be pretty sad. And I think the show, I don't think, I know the show makes them celebrities where they wouldn't be celebrities in life. They would be, a lot of them grew up picked on and bullied because of their, uh, you know, handicaps. Whereas on the Stern show, they are celebrated and they're, they're, you know, held up on a pedestal. Sure, sometimes there's a goof thing going on, but for the most part, you know, you take a, take a guy like uh, Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice is a huge now in TikTok, but people don't know Beetlejuice got to start with the Stern show. And Beetlejuice has been in movies and he's been, you know, in music videos and celebrities have flown him out to islands. And he's lived the life that he would have never lived without the introduction to the world on the show. And I've walked with him through an airport and I've seen people run after him like he's Michael Jordan in awe. So, you know, uh, the Whack Pack are a special group of people, and that was my beat uh, for the show. I kept in touch with all the Whack Pack and would report back to the show if there's anything interesting. So I was kind of like a conduit between the Whack World and the show world. And when I left the show, uh, the Whack World didn't care, and they're still in touch. And, we still <laughs> and there's no there's no resigning from that position, and I'm fine with that. I love those. I love those people. So nothing personal against you? No, no, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so. But, you know, give it time. Yeah. 
What do you miss the most about not being on that show? I miss hanging with the uh, with the other staffers. Uh, I miss being in studio. You know, I miss that long before I left the show. Uh, but you know, that I probably miss the most. Just being in studio, being in that office environment, busting balls, having fun. Uh, there's a great group of people working there. Definitely love working with them. Um, you know, management not so much, but the people who work there loved it and. Very happy to uh, to have given my time there. Tell us something about Howard that most people would not know from uh, inside that you see him. What's, what kind of person is he? He's actually a black Marine vet from <laughs> Vietnam, uh, which a lot of people don't know. Uh, listen, I tell people all the time, they go, what's he like? I go, he's phenomenal. He hired me, and he didn't have to do that. I had zero experience in radio Uh and he gave me an opportunity because he knew nobody would work harder for this than someone who believed in it, someone who loved it. And uh, that's genius on his part. He gave me an opportunity that no one in radio would have given me with the amount of experience that I had. And he loves people contributing. It doesn't matter what your title is. I, I've been in meetings where it's interns pitching ideas, head writers, other writers, you know, whatever it may be. He loves people contributing um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, if I had to do it again, I would in a second, man. He's a good dude. So is, is his strength picking, uh, certain car- personalities or is it, does no. he have some insight? In, I mean, what's, what's no. his strength? His strength is making whatever your personality is interesting. His strength is making it interesting and making uh, a trip to the store interesting. It's not easy to do. And he has that gift and that ability to do that. So that's something you can't teach. It's like teaching somebody to be Korean. You can either be Korean or you're not, you know? Um, So yeah, that's, that's, I think his gift and his interviewing is off the charts these days. You listen to these guest interviews, they're phenomenal. So uh, again, he's, he's, he's the man. Yeah, he is. Um, Tell me if, if my uh, perception is correct or off base. Back in the 80s versus what he's doing in serious radio right now, he, he, seems, he seems to have calmed down a, a lot in terms of cis style. Is that is that right? or? Absolutely. I mean, haven't we all? You, you know, how were you in the 80s? I bet you were an animal, right? I mean, it's evolution, right? We all either evolve or you're stuck and you're never going to evolve. And, and uh, a lot of his like core fan base doesn't like that word because they haven't gone through it. <laughs> so, but it's the truth. You evolve, your, your kids get older. You want your kids to respect what you do and how you do it. And it changes you being a father and a parent and, and knowing that, you know, your kids uh, will be attached to your work in a certain way. Right. So, right. and plus you're, you know, Nobody wants to see a you know seventy year old guy telling a stripper to take her top off. That's just weird. Right. I thought that when uh, WNBC let Howard go, it was a big mistake. Uh, obviously, it was good feel for the same way now too, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they felt the same way a little while after too. Yeah, because I don't think they ever recovered after uh, Howard left in that time slot or any other slot. Yeah. Well, listen, man. We'll see how radios. Not long for this world in general, I don't think so. You think? Yeah. I think, okay. I think I think once Wi-Fi is available in all cars, it's a wrap, son. 
I do like that. It's I do Augustus, like that. It's the Augustus Cho channel in my car. So the future is obviously podcasting in your in your perspective. Hundred percent, especially for stand up. For, for comics, this is how, this is better. When I started, we used to put flyers on people's cars to come in. Right. And that was like, if you put a thousand flyers out, you get 10 people. Now you do a podcast, whoever listens, you have an 80% chance that they're coming to your show if you're in their town. They're listening. Wow. They're tested. They found your show somehow, some way. They're still listening. They're a fan. So now you're telling that fan, I'm coming to your town. They're coming. It's not, it's not a spin of the wheel. It's not a roll of the dice. It, it ensures ticket sales, uh, which not too many things have in the past. You know, you used to do Tonight Show. You'd be set. Uh, Howard's show back in the day. You'd do great. Rogan now, right? So this is, this is, uh, this is the way it goes. Check out the show, the Shuley show. I will. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Augusta, so much for this, man. I had a pleasure. Take care. All right, brother.